and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Alejandro de la Fuente, Roberts Woods, Robert Woods Bliss, Professor of Latin American History and Economics, Professor of African and African American Studies, and Director of the Afro-Latin American Research Institute at Harvard University, and Ariella J. Gross, John B. and Alice R. Sharp, Professor of Law and History and Co-Director of the Center for Law, History, and Culture at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. We will discuss their new book, Becoming Free, Becoming Black, Race, Freedom, and Law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the show, Alejandro and, and Ariella. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I'm so glad we were able to arrange this interview because I thought your book was fantastic and a really rich uh, archival study of three fascinating jurisdictions and the sort of history of racial slavery in those jurisdictions. So, So I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the origins of the project and how the two of you came to work on it together. Sure. Um, it's almost embarrassing to realize how long we've worked on this project together, probably on and off for about 10 years. And both of us had already been thinking about a lot of these issues um, in different places. I worked on uh, the history of race and racism and the law in the United States. And, um, and Alejandro had been working on um, studies of free uh, people, m- enslaved people making claims on the law in Cuba. Um, and we both got interested in, in thinking about um, race comparatively. Um, for, for me, that came up because in my earlier study, which looked at trials of racial identity in the United States, when courts were trying to figure out whether someone was black or white, um, usually in order to decide what kind of rights they could have, I I was surprised to find how many people in the United States kind of lived on a middle ground between black and white. And the comparative story that's usually told is that, you know, it's Latin America where there are all of these kind of gradations of racial identity and fluidity of race, but that the U.S. is just black and white. And that made me want to go further in comparing the United States to Cuba uh, or other, you know, another part of Latin America and and to, to try to figure out where really is the difference. So when we, you know, we... <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think there is anything embarrassing about this. You know, it takes uh, these projects uh, do take a, a long time to come together. And it's not that we were working on this uh, uninterruptedly for the last uh, ten years or so. Um, I think it, it took us both a while to, you know, we began by working on uh, on a couple of um, on a couple of papers. Uh, we published a couple of articles and. Um, I, I don't know, at some point, um, and I frankly do not remember exactly when, but at some point we felt that we were ready to, that we were ready to move to the next stage and to actually write a book together. Um, 
you know, and at that point, we were both uh, advanced enough in our own, our own careers that we could also um, decide to do something like this without really knowing what we were getting into, because there were uh, major chunks, major chunks for the, um, for the research for the book that neither Ariella nor I had done before. So we actually had to do primary research, new primary research, substantial new primary research across linguistic barriers and across jurisdictions to to be able to uh, to write the book together, uh, which I must say has been a wonderful experience. Well, so Ariella mentioned, among other things, that there's a kind of conventional wisdom around the relationship between slavery and freedom or the availability of freedom. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what that conventional wisdom was um, and what caused you to question whether that was really the full story. And sort of, did you have a sense of what the story you were likely to find was going to be before you did the archival research, or were there aspects of the archival research that were surprising to you? To some extent, I certainly found myself surprised by 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 some of the things that we found. Um, I think we were trying to answer the question of how was it that three societies that were similar in many ways. They were both kind of all three full-blown plantation slave societies at their peak, but they came from three different legal traditions. There was a French colony, a Spanish, and a British. Um, they Three societies that in some ways started from very similar beginnings and that colonists in all three places, kind of almost as soon as they arrive in the new world, they get down to the business of enshrining racial distinctions into law and um, and associating degraded and enslaved status with blackness and African origins. And yet by 1860, um, the the possibilities for a person of, a free person of color to have a place in the public life of that society is quite different in Cuba on the one hand, Virginia and Louisiana on the other. And and so that was really the question we were trying to answer is how how is it that they end up so different? And I think the conventional answer has been, had been um, either, well, that was enshrined by the difference between a civil law and a common law tradition or, or a, um, a Catholic and a, a Protestant, you know, but, but essentially um, from the beginning, static over time, it was inevitable from the beginning. Um, or, um, you know, or this idea about about how how um, different kinds of um, uh, racial regimes, in the sense of of um, the the gradations between black and white, that those that that was a real difference between 
um, Latin America and the United States. And and I think we were surprised, or at least I was surprised to see um, how much change over time there was and, and how much, for example, in the earliest century, like in the 17th century, it's actually Virginia that has the greatest openness because they don't have precedents for uh, slavery in their law and they're still working stuff out and there's still a lot of possibility for a free person of color or for, for someone to claim freedom, for example, based on being Christian or having a white father, things like that. So I think there were quite a few surprises and a lot of them were about um, really what happens over time um, that it, I don't know. Alejandro might see it uh, differently. I'm not sure, or, or different aspects might have struck him. Um, you know, I I, I I totally agree that uh, with the surprise element because you know if you if you recall, Ariela, our initial impulse was to actually produce a very detailed comparative study of slave law. Uh, in these jurisdictions. And we thought that the conventional wisdom had always been that um, differences in, in, you know, in what uh, a previous generation of scholars would have called race relations uh, were anchored in um, differences in, uh, in legal slave regimes in places like Cuba or Brazil and the United States. And we actually began our study sort of following that track. And along the way, we realized that rather than the law of slavery, it was the law of freedom that uh, made um, a more important, uh, had a a greater impact on the creation of uh, racial regimes uh, in this jurisdiction. So we began to pay much more attention and to do more research on how the law uh, constituted blackness as a category of, uh, of social debasement, and also on uh, regulations um, that particularly addressed blacks uh, or negros or noirs, regardless of uh, social status. Um, moments in the law, moments of race making in the law in which blackness, regardless of status, was constituted as the subordinate, um, as a subordinate social uh, position, so along the way we sort of shifted our emphasis from one area of legal production to another, and I think that was a surprise to um, certainly to me, but I think to both of us. I wonder if if you could talk a little bit about how each of these jurisdictions seems to have started with a kind of different version of slave law. Sort of where did that come from and how did that affect the initial concept of who was enslaved and what their capacity to try to claim freedom would have been? Well, I, I think I mentioned earlier that the surprising fact that, you know, Virginia in some ways is the most um, up for grabs because it doesn't, it, the British arrive or the English colonists arrive without uh, having kind of social and legal precedents for slavery. And that's in real contrast to 
both the Spanish and the French. The Spanish have this big head start when they arrive in Havana because they've been enslaving Africans in the Mediterranean. And, uh, and so they have, um, you know, not only a, a medieval code, but also just local ordinances and practices that, that can be translated really directly to what um, they do in Havana. Um, and when the French arrive a century later in, in the early 18th century in Louisiana, they have had practice in the Caribbean. They already have a code. They tinker with it and tighten it up um, for Louisiana. Um, they they and they come out with some new ordinances, but they um, they hit the ground running in a way that isn't true in Virginia. The big difference is, and and the aspect that is really key in setting Cuba apart from both of the other places is that they never limit the right to the uh, ability of an owner of slaves to um, manumit or emancipate those people. And um, and that uh, practice of manumission uh, continues unrestricted in Cuba, whereas in both um, French Louisiana and in uh, in Virginia, um, those restrictions are added. Sometimes they're re- they're relaxed at different moments in over the centuries we look at, and then they're tightened again. But but that those restrictions become really important in limiting the ability to to create a, a meaningfully large community of free people of color. Yeah, and then that has an enormous impact in the long term. You know, I think it's important to say that um, in in the case of Cuba, this doesn't happen because of any special cultural or ethical um, uh, consideration in terms of the of the owners of enslaved people in in Cuba or in the rest of uh, of Spanish America. Um, it has to do with the fact that manumission in the Iberian world was not tied to race. Uh, manumission was an, an um, ransoming uh, Christian or Muslim slaves in Mediterranean. Uh, Iberia was a very common practice. People would go in and out of slavery um, depending on their luck and their, their circumstances. So the practice is um the practice is uh is part of the of the culture of uh legal culture of, of slavery and enslavement in in early 16th century Iberia and it's transferred to to the new world and therefore it's a practice that never is tied is runs parallel to efforts to create a racial order but of course it is a practice that in some ways undermines the racial order because every uh, enslaved uh, African or per- or person of African descent who manages to escape from enslavement through manumission, through various forms of manumission, or more frequently self-purchase, each of those persons would then um, contribute to undermine a racial order, a perfect racial order uh, in which um, Africans and people of African descent will all be enslaved and Europeans would be free. I wonder if you could 
reflect a little or discuss a little how uh, enslaved people actually used the law of freedom uh, at in each of these jurisdictions to try to kind of claim their own freedom, whether that's through manumission or through purchasing their freedom, and how those societies responded to that. So Alejandro mentioned this, the fact that in Cuba, um, manumission does not become tied to race. And that's really in contrast to what happens in first in Virginia, and then later really in Louisiana. So I think to me, one of the most surprising things was um, what happens in the age of revolution, because I was really used to thinking about um, the age of revolution in terms of um, what the revolutionary historian Bernard Balin called the, you know, the contagion of liberty. And this idea that that was a moment in the late 18th century um, uh, when uh, everybody is getting the news kind of around the Atlantic about freedom, right? And you've got revolutions not only in France and the United States, but in Haiti. And uh, and you have emancipation in the northern states and a flood of um, of uh, freedom suits in places like Virginia. And um, so I was used to thinking about that moment as a just a time of the expansion of freedom. And as we look more closely, though, it's certainly true that this is a moment when enslaved people use every tool available to them. Um, in Virginia, there are two main ways that um, people are able to take advantage of new opportunities in the age of revolution. Um, neither of them was kind of meant for them, <laughs> but they but they turn them to their use. So for example, there's a law um, in passed in Virginia against importation of slaves into Virginia. Now, this is essentially like a protectionist law, right, about protecting prices of slaves in the market in Virginia from flooding the market with slaves from outside the state. But the the penalty for illegal importation is to emancipate the slave. And so enslaved people learn about this and they start bringing lawsuits saying, I should be free because I was illegally imported into the state. Hundreds of people are bringing these lawsuits based on illegal importation. And even after the legislature tries to shut things down because they, they're getting this flood, um, you can they, sh- they try to shut it down in 1806 and you're still seeing these suits in the, as late as the 1820s, even 1830s. So um, it, it's remarkable how people will use every lever they have to great effect. And yet um, these are not um, laws that were passed for their benefit, right? They were not laws that, in fact, they were about shoring up the system of slavery. Um, and the other thing that happens is Virgi- in Virginia is that people bring claims based on Indian identity. And that really ties manumission to race because they say, I should be free because I'm not black. I'm not a Negro. I am 
um, my ancestor was Indian, and so I shouldn't be enslaved. And that never happens um, in Cuba. But in each of these jurisdictions, um, what we find is, um, is, is how enslaved people use any legal recourse available to sometimes stretching those uh, in, in really novel ways, uh, as Ariella was um, referring to before, in order to claim freedom or to claim sometimes, if not freedom as a whole, to claim you know, some degree of control over their lives, some degree of autonomy. Um, and in some cases, they managed to do incredible things. You know, Ariella was mentioning this law, um, the importation law in Virginia, in Cuba, and, uh, and also in Spanish Louisiana uh, after uh, the 1760s. Uh, slaves managed to basically impose um, an, an interpretation of uh, self-purchase practices, of customary self-purchase practices that were highly beneficial to them because they could pay, they could basically pay their freedom in installments. They could offer a down payment and they managed to have those uh, payments uh, recognized, uh, legally recognized. And that opened up a whole space uh, for debate about whether an enslaved person who had already purchased a part of himself or herself or a part of his or her time was entitled, in fact, to control, to some uh, proportional control over time and labor. Uh, of course, uh, the owners were uh, adamantly opposed uh, to this um, but there are hundreds of cases in which uh, the courts were forced to were forced to deal with these questions, and these questions, which had major uh, legal implications, were forced by the enslaved themselves. So the story you tell in the book suggests that at least some of the differences in where Cuba kind of ended up in the mid nineteenth century in relation to slavery as opposed to where Virginia and Louisiana ended up was a function of where they started? Were there? Do you think there were other factors, other social factors or um, other economic factors uh, or other demographic factors maybe that influenced the ultimate kind of uh, development of the institution of slavery and the availability of manumission and the creation of free black communities. So one factor that we, uh, we that we think is very important here, uh, Ariella mentioned the age of revolution. These three jurisdictions arrived at the age of revolution with vastly different uh, social demographic configurations. Uh, Cuba arrived at the age of revolution with a fairly, you know, fairly large community of free people of color. And the size and the strength and the importance, the social assertiveness of that community is something that um, would have to be destroyed uh, in order to create a perfect racial world of uh, enslaved blacks and, and free whites. So that that is a very important distinction that is already there by the time of the age of revolution, 
But then the age of revolution, there are moments in the age of revolution, there are impulses, there are opportunities, there are possibilities uh, that at least for some time it looked like Virginia may go, um, may come closer, and in fact did come closer uh, to Cuba and to and to what what was at the time Spanish Louisiana, because the the free population of color in Virginia uh, did grow dramatically between the 1780s, you know, or the 1770s and, and 1800 or so. Um, but that doesn't uh, doesn't diminish the fact that um, that in the in the case of Cuba there was already a fairly large uh, community, and this is true not just of Havana but the rest of the island as well, and that that community provided crucial resources uh, for um, for other for other enslaved people to to escape slavery, uh, not just financial resources, which were of course very important. But also other social uh, resources, you know, networks of support, uh, access to to knowledge, access to uh, to proper officials. Um, um, so, so that's a factor that we we devote quite a quite a bit of time and quite a bit of attention to that factor in the book, right? Yeah, and um, the the other thing I I would say about the age of revolution there is is about the importance of of politics and the connection that that gets made in Virginia and later Louisiana um, between manumission and um, individual emancipation with the fear of mass emancipation or, or what they call general emancipation. So you know, at the time of in particular, I think the 1830s, um, when you have, um, you know, Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, you have the beginnings of this much more vocal um, political campaign for the abolition of slavery and, um, you know, revolutionary pamphlets being smuggled around the South by free people of color. Um, the the petitions that flood into the Virginia legislature are saying, you know, we want to put a stop to um, individual emancipations because, or what they call partial emancipation, because that's the first step in general emancipation. You know, this is going to lead to the end of slavery and we can't have black people free black people living side by side with white people. You know, we will have to remove them. We will have to send them out of the state or out of the country. And there's this whole movement for removal of free people of color. Um, and even anti-slavery advocates think, you know, black people and white people can't live side by side. And and so that idea that that it's threatening to the whole system of slavery if if one owner frees one slave or someone purchases their own freedom through hard work. Uh, that doesn't isn't seen as a threat in a traditional slave system, right? Mo in fact, most slave systems throughout history have incorporated that. So that's really about the political moment ironically, of the American Republic, that that 
comes to seem so threatening. We're extending citizenship to all white men, and we can't have free Black people out here claiming citizenship. Mm. Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was, like, the incredible number of, like, fascinating personal stories that sort of came out of your archival research. And I wonder if there were particular stories that jumped out at you or that really stuck with you that you'd be interested in sharing with listeners. Alejandro, did you have any favorites? I know I have mine. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting question whether we I have a favorite story. So I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking if I do have a, a favorite story. Um, actually, I don't think I do. I don't think I have a favorite story. I think I have I have favorite um, I have favorite um, I have favorite initiatives. I have favorite um, moments in the book about we both we both arrived uh, to this book with uh, we, we we were both doing histories um, legal histories of slavery from from the bottom up, we were both doing social histories and cultural histories of slavery from the bottom up and trying to understand how enslaved people uh, shaped legal regimes and shaped legal interpretations and legal practices in places in the United States and, and, and Cuba. So we had that in common and therefore, and I think that shows in the book, that's why you have many, many of these uh, examples and individual stories um, but I don't really, it's a good question, Brian. I don't really have, I, I, I think Ariella does, but, but I don't. <laughs> well, I'll tell you just two, I'll have, here are two things that came to mind for me. Um, you know, one of, um, and I guess it's because I'm, I'm especially attracted, and maybe this is, my husband always calls me Pollyanna because I'm always going to find the bright side of, of, you know, whatever the tragic story is. And, and in many ways, if you're talking about, you know, a history of race and um, under slavery, and you're talking about the shutting down of possibilities for free people of color, it's a pretty tragic story. But I am always humbled and amazed by the ways that, that people did make use of, of these legal openings. And, um, one in particular, I, I um, loved tracing in Virginia the, you know, I mentioned that people made these claims based on Indian identity. And one of the things I found so striking is that if one person was able to win a claim showing that she was descended from a free Indian woman and therefore won her freedom based on that ancestry. If, if one person won a claim like that, the legal knowledge would travel throughout the community of free people of color, sometimes to counties far away um, that anyone related to that Indian great-grandmother, any descendant, might also be able to make a claim for freedom um, because using this precedent of their, you know, third cousin's case. And um, we've been able to find 
Um, and, and actually, as a historian named Honor Sachs, who's at the University of Colorado, has done great work on this, you know, kind of tracing those networks of sometimes dozens of family members winning cases based on that same great grandmother and, and the resources it took, you know, people who were probably illiterate, um, held in bondage, you know, with very little access to, you know, we talk about access to justice today, you know, access to lawyers, and yet they're, they're able to transmit that knowledge. And the other one of my favorite cases, and this is sort of an example of how none of the three places we're talking about are hermetically sealed from one another. They were in conversation with each other, but that doesn't mean that the same the same claims worked in all places. So um, we we write about one case in Louisiana, which happened in very late in the game. I think it was eight. It was in the 1840s in New Orleans. So pretty late. It's been an American state, you know, for 30 years. Um, but it, but there's still some memory, both in the legal system and also among the citizens, memory of Spanish traditions, legal traditions. And you still find cases where people bring a claim based on having purchase themselves through one of these installment contracts that Alejandro was talking about in, under Spanish law. In the 19th century, people are still making those claims. So I found one case where um, this hat maker, Hatter, <laughs> um, claimed that he had purchased him. He had a purchase contract by himself for $800. He'd already paid, I think, 500. I can't remember if he paid 500 at 300 left or the other way around. Um, yeah, he paid 500. And not only did he think, um, you know, that his owner should be held to that contract, but he, his lawyer actually made the argument that he owned five eighths of his time because of this contract that he should get wages for five out of every eight hours and be able to put those towards his purchase price. And this was a claim that um, was made quite often in Cuba and sometimes won in, uh, in Cuban cases. He's kind of laughed out of court in Louisiana, but I just thought it was so remarkable that, um, that, that in, as late as the 1840s, um, he's still drawing on that Spanish legal tradition and kind of trying to find a, a, a you know, maneuver a legal way to to say, actually, I've I've paid my whole price and I should be free. Uh, Ariella and Alejandro, um, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect briefly on what you think the sort of core contributions of your book are and how you hope this book might inflect scholarship in this area and thinking about the history of slavery in relation to the history of uh, free African-Americans. So we offer, we, offer, um, we offer a new take on an old question, Brian. Uh, the question itself is not new. This is a question that has haunted um, scholars of uh, slavery and race 
in the United States and Latin America for a very long time, uh, since at least the mid uh, since uh, at least the mid twentieth century, if not before, uh, because the the, the contrast uh, between the two regions is something that has preoccupied uh, scholars for a very long time. Um, but we not only offer a different answer uh, or set of answers uh, to that old question, we also uh, try to construct those answers um, um, by carefully uh, studying and centering uh, the initiatives and uh, and the actions of Africans and, and people of African descent uh, in this uh, in these jurisdictions. Something that, of course, we could do because uh, the scholarship on race and slavery has increased dramatically in the U.S., but also in Latin America in the last uh, in the last uh, uh, few decades. Uh, so, um, so I think that's that's our main um, our, our main contribution. We 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 decided to finish the book uh, at the time of emancipation, uh, roughly in, in all these jurisdictions. You know, moment of war of conflict in in, in Virginia, Louisiana, and Cuba, as well. Uh, and we we finished with this feeling that. Uh, in a sense, our finding about the importance of uh, the law of freedom and how it it helped um, it helped define and create a race uh, has, in turn, um, long term effects, which we do not explore in the book, but that we hope other scholars um, may pursue in in their own research. I, it also, you know, un, unfortunately, it's hard not to see echoes of, of some of the things that we're talking about in the book um, today. And um, to me, I think one of the most important uh, contributions of the book is to explain how it is that citizenship becomes so tied to whiteness in the law in the United States in a way it doesn't in Cuba, and that that's really the key difference in the racial regimes, that it, it isn't about kind of gradations of color that that makes the difference between these places. It's how possible is it for a free person of color to make a claim to be part of public life or, or a claim to citizenship in the U.S., and um, and the the fact that uh, in the U.S. citizenship becomes reserved for for white people, and of course that's what at issue after you know after the Civil War during Reconstruction, and you know and unfortunately it, it's still something we see being challenged today. Great. Well, uh, Alejandro Ariela, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this important new book. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it and I really enjoyed talking to you about it. Uh, and I hope listeners will pick up a copy themselves because we've really only scratched the surface. Um, and there's a lot more in there. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for having us.
en volontarón, yo conozco un gambao que está siempre pelado como el hijo del moro. Mira, te dicen gambao por tu pata joroba y donde quiera que tú vas, siempre te canta pelado. Que mira, a ti te dicen el ripiao por tu pata joroba y donde quiera que tú vas, siempre te canta pelado. Boloña como juega, con quien sabe no se juega Boloña, Boloña buena, Boloña tú estás que pela Se formó la choristera Boloña, Boloña buena, no, 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 